Last time I referenced the man named Christian from Pilgrim's Progress and how the book begins with Christian receiving from the book that we know to be the Bible, the Word of God, the news that his city was going to be destroyed by fire from heaven. Well, there's another notable character in that book that really you don't read about until the second part of the book. And this character in the book is the great defender of biblical truth. And his name is Valiant for Truth. I love that. Valiant for Truth. And his name is actually taken from the King James Version of a verse in our text tonight. Chapter 9, verse 3. And in the King James it says, They are not valiant for the truth upon the earth. Of course, Pilgrim is speaking about one who is valiant and jealous for the truth. And yet the people here that he's addressing are not valiant for the truth. And I think that verse could really serve as the, the great summary of the problem in our text. The kind of problem that has Jeremiah grief-stricken. Now, most of us have probably heard Jeremiah described as the weeping prophet. It comes from this text. This is where Jeremiah gets that description from our passage tonight. Also, from another verse, chapter 14, verse 17 in Jeremiah, where it says, Let my eyes run down with tears night and day, and let them not cease. And so Jeremiah gets his name, the weeping prophet, or his description from our current passage. Yet, it also seems that God weeps in this passage. In fact, it's really hard to make a distinction in some places between Jeremiah weeping and the Lord weeping. As evidenced by this sixfold, you'll see this, my people, which is a phrase that is frequently expressed, expressing of God's covenant relationship with his people. The first time you see that, my people, is in Exodus chapter 5, verse 1. One scholar suggests that it's likely that the, the pathos of God and Jeremiah are indistinguishable in the passage. That's why it's hard for us to determine if it's Jeremiah weeping or it's God weeping. Recognizing that God is immutable, he's impassable, but there are anthropopathisms, that are human-like emotions that are attributed to God so we can get a kind of sense of his grief over our sin. It brings us to verse 18. We saw last time, in verse 17, a horrifying verse. Behold, I am sending among you serpents, adders that cannot be charmed. Now, we, didn't, we recognize that's not literal serpents and adders. And that's referring to the Babylonians, uh, whose king is Nebuchadnezzar. And they shall bite you, declares the Lord. Verse 18, in light of that, my joy is gone. Grief is upon me, my heart is sick within me. And so the snake bite is fatal, hence my joy is gone, grief has overtaken me. Now verse 19, the speaker is without doubt God because he describes the people there as my people. 
And so it, it appears here that this may be God speaking here. Or again, sometimes it's hard to distinguish between God and Jeremiah. My joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. Behold the cry of the Lord of my people, or the cry of the daughter of my people from the length and the breadth of the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? Why have they provoked me to anger? That is God speaking. With their carved images and with their foreign idols, which is a violation of the first commandment and the second commandment. They had forgotten that when God first made a covenant with them, they agreed to have no other gods before them. And here they are, knee-deep in unrepentant idolatry. Notice in verse 20. This is, I think, the futility of the situation, I think, is summed up in verse 20. It's one of the scariest and saddest verses in the Old Testament. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. The speaker here is now the people. Lamenting the passing of the harvest season. Now, in Israel, there are two harvest seasons. One in spring and one in summer. If one or both seasons, there is no flock, if, the, or, uh, if there's no crops, if the harvests fail, it's going to be a disaster for the people. When famine and starvation ensues, it's a disaster. And here, the situation in Judah was as desperate as when the, the crops and the harvest fail in the spring and the summer. In this particular case, it appears that God has deserted Judah. Uh, the crops are failing, literally, and the enemy, which is the Babylonians, are bearing down on them. They are ravaging the country. Verse 21, For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn and dis dismay has taken hold on me. Now, this is a very important verse. We're going to come back to this. This is, this is such a crucial question that we see in this passage. Is there no bomb in Gilead? It's just a picture of hopelessness. Is there no physician there? Of course, this is not physical help that he's concerned with. This is spiritual Sickness, spiritual health. Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? Again, my people, this seems to be the Lord speaking. And when he asks questions, it's not so that God can learn information. God is omniscient. He knows all things. He, he's declared the end from the beginning. But he wants us to get a sense of the pathos and the gravity of, of sin and idolatry. Now, bomb and Gilead here, that was a metaphor that the people would have definitely understood. It's explained in the parallel line, why then has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? Gilead, and it was on the eastern side of the Jordan, was famous for its healing ointment made in the resin of a tree uh, whose identity is uncertain. We don't know what kind of tree it was. 
but it was some kind of made from some kind of resin. If you'll remember, when we were studying Genesis a long time ago, when Joseph was sold into slavery, the passing Ishmaelites were bringing balm from Gilead down into Egypt. Genesis chapter 37. And so scholars have been unable to figure out how it was made. Dorothy or Polly or someone probably knows how to make it. But scholars don't know how it was made. But evidently, it was some kind of ointment like our modern-day aloe vera. That's what many people uh, speculate. But Jeremiah couldn't find any balm in Gilead for their wounds. But actually, there was a remedy. There was a remedy for the people's wounds. That remedy was repentance. Repentance. But they had not applied it. And there was a physician. There was a physician in Judah who could heal their spiritual sickness, the prophet with God's word. But they refused to consult him. When we do not respond to the word of God and we refuse to repent, then uh, it does us no good. There, There are certain traditions that believe that it's in the doing That you just go to a a service, you go to a mass, and it's in the doing uh, that you receive grace. Whether you have explicit faith in Christ or not, or explicit intentional repentance. Well, this text certainly exposes that fallacy. Notice Jeremiah's response in chapter 9, verse 1. His metaphors, just beautiful imagery if not painful imagery at times, are second to none. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Again, is Jeremiah the one weeping here? Or is it... This attributed to the Lord. It's almost indistinguishable. It really doesn't matter, does it? Because Jeremiah represents, as the official prophet of God, he represents the pathos of God. He says, I wish my head were just pure waters and that my eyes were a fountain so that I could cry, that I could weep, I could grieve in a manner that represents the real Gravity of things. This is an unprecedented display, I think, of emotion. It reveals the depth of Jeremiah's grief. And I can say, we can say God's grief. Because we know that, at least from the scriptures, that you can grieve the Holy Spirit. Notice in verse 2. Oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place. So Jeremiah, or God, is so wearied by the unresponsiveness of the people that he wishes he could just go to this traveler's lodging place, a desert inn, if you will, which were not known to be comfortable places. Desolate, lonely place, because he's so fed up with their lack of response that that I might leave my people... And go away from them, notice, for they are all adulterers. 
Now, certainly, marriage unfaithfulness was an issue. But when adultery is used by the prophets, it also refers to spiritual adultery. So this could be both and. Uh, When someone has committed spiritual adultery, oftentimes it reflects itself in marital infidelity. Uh, You can't commit marital infidelity without being an idolater. Because at that moment, you have placed something as more important than your relationship with God. And so he describes them as adulterers. Notice, a company of treacherous men. So these are adulterers. They're idolaters. They were treacherous men as well. In other words, they were divisive people. We see that more clearly in verses 3 to 6. They bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land. For they proceed from evil to evil and they do not know me, declares the Lord. In other words, this divisiveness, this treachery, This bending of the tongue like a bow and arrow is reflective, is the fruit of not knowing God. He says, let everyone beware of his neighbor. You can't trust them. And put no trust in any brother, for every brother is a deceiver. Now, you may have a footnote there. Literally, every brother is a Jacob. Remember, in Genesis, the name Jacob means deceiver. And here he is literally saying, every brother's a Jacob. Remember, Jacob deceived his brother, Esau. And he's saying, everyone in Judah is like Jacob. Every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor No one speaks the truth. They've taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity. They commit so much sin that they get tired committing sin. Heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit. They refuse to know me, declares the Lord. And when that happens, God doesn't ignore it. He never ignores it. And so remember, even as we are reading and studying about a people who are under the old covenant, we're not under the old covenant. The new covenant made the old covenant obsolete. Hebrews tells us that, right? We still see what provokes the anger of God. Because God doesn't change. He is immutable. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His character is the same. And so when we see in the Old Testament what provokes God, that has never changed. God does not ignore it. Notice in verse 7, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and test them. For what else can I do? Because of my people. Now, this metaphor of refining was used early in chapter 6. There, it was Jeremiah. Who was the one doing the refining? It says in chapter 6 that he made him a test of metals among his people. And so as Jeremiah preached, that word 
tested the people. The word always tests the people. And your response to the word exposes what you are. It, it exposes who you are. The word is always a tester of the people. If you don't respond to the word, that reveals something. It reveals something very horrifying. If you respond to the word, that reveals something as well, something beautiful and glorious. Well, Jeremiah was the tester of metals in chapter 6, but here God is. Sometimes when all the warnings fail, God submits people to the crucible of suffering. It's horrifying. And Jeremiah reminds us that these tests are warranted. Notice in verse 8, again, going back to the division, their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully. With his mouth, each speaks peace to his neighbor. Literally, shalom. Shalom to the face of his neighbor. But in his heart, he plans an ambush for him. You think this can preach today? Have you ever known anyone who acts like your ally to your face? But... His or her real motives are ambush. I mean, that's the language he uses. This person is agenda-driven over relationship-driven. These persons that Jeremiah were having to deal with represent the classic division, divisive people that you'll find in some churches. Pastor R. Kent Hughes, in one of his works addresses the kind of people that Jeremiah is dealing with here. Those who are divisive by nature lust for the fray, incite its onset and delight in being able to conquer another person. For them, victory means everything. So in an argument, they twist words, they call names, they threaten, they manipulate procedures, and they attempt to extend the debate as long as possible and along as many fronts as possible. Divisive persons frequent the debates of the church. As a result, the same voices and personalities tend to appear over and over again, even though the issues change. And the damage to a person's reputation by lying words from the divisive can be as harmful as he says, a deadly hair arrow to the heart. That's what's going on in that day. I submit to you, the devil's tactics have not changed. And so for a third time, God asked if such a nation should not be punished. Notice in verse 9. Shall I not punish them for these things? You may have a footnote there. Chapter 5, verse 9. Chapter 5, verse 29. So he's already asked that question two times. This is the third time. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord. This is the Lord speaking. Shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? So what is Jeremiah doing? He is, he is establishing the case 
for why judgment is going to fall on Judah. Judah fell. There's no denying that history. It came in three, you know, departments. The Babylonians came in, in 605, they came in 597, and they came in 586 and destroyed the temple, took the, to the king Jehoiakim into to slavery. In history, it tells us they fell, it fell. And Jeremiah is showing us it did not fall without warning. And he's establishing the case of why it failed. And so this is the God who is warning here, whose first def definition of his own identity begins, Exodus 34, remember this? The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. But he continues in that passage and says, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. God can no longer, at this point, let the guilty avoid punishment. And yet, this act of punishment will be carried out with grieving love. Verse 10 and 11. I will take up weeping and wailing for the mountains and a lamentation for the pastures of the wilderness because they are laid waste so that no one passes through. And the lowing of cattle is not heard. Both the birds of the air and the beast have fled and are gone. I will make Jerusalem a, a heap of ruins, a lair of jackals. And I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. The whole ecosystem will collapse, leaving, it says, only scavengers, the, the jackals. Now, this language is the language of decreation. We first saw it in chapter 4, verses 23 to 28, where the day of the Lord is described. Of course, we know when judgment fell on Judah, that was kind of a preview, a coming attraction of the ultimate day of the Lord. And again, it's uncertain here whether it's God speaking or Jeremiah. It's irrelevant. But since God is clearly the speaker in verse 11, because he's the one that's going to bring judgment, he probably is also the one speaking in verse 10. Now, this deed would be done by, the, by Nebuchadnezzar. It's going to be done by the Babylonians, and yet it's God who purposed it. It is God who ultimately orders it. The decision is the Lord's. But again, as we close out this passage, a central purpose of the Old Testament, perhaps the central purpose of the Old Testament, is to definitively drive home. And the Old Testament writers do it in 39 books. To definitively drive home why we need someone greater. Because we can't produce it on our own. What Judah and what the world needs, because it will be through the seed of Abraham, Judah, that this will come about. We need someone who will heal our diseases, our spiritual diseases. Certainly there's physical diseases that will be healed ultimately in the resurrection. But our greatest disease that needs healing is our spiritual disease. 
Because we can live with physical disease and still have hope. You can't live under the dominion of spiritual disease and have any hope, even if your body is completely healthy. They needed a great physician. They needed a greater king than any king that they have had thus far. Here's what they needed. They needed the bomb of Gilead incarnate. They needed the bomb of Gilead in the flesh. They needed the Christ, the one they were hoping for, the Messiah, one greater than David, who, like Jeremiah, wept over the sins of his people. As we can see in Luke chapter 19, he weeps over Jerusalem. In fact, if you go to Israel, the tourist guide will often take you to that place where they believed he stood as he wept over Jerusalem. It's pretty, pretty remarkable to, to stand there. And like Jeremiah, our greater prophet wept over the sins of the people. But he did something that Jeremiah couldn't do. And something much more important than weeping. He died to heal the wounds of his people's sin. The Lord Jesus Christ is the bomb of Gilead. Again, is there no bomb in Gilead? That's the question. You could even say it becomes the question of the Old Testament that can only be answered when God takes on, puts on human flesh. When John the Baptist comes and pronounces as the messenger. And, and here's something that's perhaps beautiful and perhaps something you don't reflect on enough. The bomb of Gilead isn't for this life only. Think about this in Revelation 22. This is the new heavens. This is the new earth that John is, is, is speaking to here. And it says, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Isn't that beautiful? So there at the tree of life in the city of God where Jesus rules, Jeremiah will find the healing balm for God's people. These leaves, he says, John says, were for the healing of the nations. And I love this. No longer will there be anything accursed. The curse is coming on the people of God because of covenant disobedience, idolatry. But in this day, there will no longer be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His servants will worship Him. His servants will not, in that day, turn their back on Him. They will not engage in, in idolatry. In that day, they will worship him. And think about this. The weeping prophet will no longer need Kleenex. For God, Revelation 21, 4, 
has wiped away every tear. And that's what I believe these texts are preparing us for. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this text. It's dark, but we need bad news in order to celebrate the good news of the bomb of Gilead who has come in the flesh as our substitute to heal our spiritual diseases so that, as Revelation 22 says, that we can once and for all worship you without the distractions of idolatry and sin. And Lord, we just pray that as we continue through these Jeremiah texts, you, that you would use these texts to strengthen our love for the one who has come, our Lord Jesus Christ. So Father, now as we go into this family meeting session, we pray for a spirit of unity. We pray for the bond of peace, for the glory of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.